What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategerist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. really excited about this special episode. First off, our co-host is Lindsay Knutson, the Director of Leadership Programs here at the Bush Institute, and who served in the White House as personal aide and special assistant to the First Lady from 2003 to 2009. Lindsay, so glad you're here. Thank you, Andrew. I'm so happy to be here. And our guest is that First Lady herself, the incomparable Mrs. Laura Bush. Thank you so much for chatting with us, ma'am. Thank you very much. I'm excited to do this podcast. I think this might be the first time I've done a podcast. Well, we are beyond honored to be the first. So I understand you were recently in Jordan with President Bush, and while you were there, visited Ruba Rihani Abbasi, a Bush Institute We Lead Scholar. Well, we had a wonderful trip to Jordan, uh, to Oman, and to Abu Dhabi. But in Jordan, uh, we got to meet with Ruba, who had been one of our scholars, one of our We Lead scholars, uh, which are women from across the broad, broader Middle East and Northern Africa. And she went back home and put together a whole program herself. She may have actually designed it when she was with us as part of We Lead to work with Arab women. And her program is called Arab Women Today. It's at the Arab Women Today Center. Really, what they are trying to do is empower women. It's women helping women. All these women, because they were, you know, from the broader Middle East or Syria or, or uh, in this case, Jordan, really needed help helping each other. They have a, obviously, they come from countries that have a long history of women being left out. Although we see, and we certainly see this with our We Lead scholars, that women are stepping forward all the way across the broader Middle East. But what happened was Ruba used the skills that she'd learned here um, with us at the Bush Center as a We Lead scholar and put them to use now for Arab women at this Arab Women Today Center. Uh, she's helping many of these women start their own businesses uh, so they can help provide for their families. And the women come to her with certain skills. Some of them knew, already knew embroidery or soap making or jewelry making. And then she's worked also to help educate them in, in these skills that they want to be able to use. And they make things that they can sell. Did you have a chance to do some shopping or pick anything up? One of the things I bought, in fact, it was one of the only things I bought on this trip, were little bracelets uh, mm. for little Mila and Poppy, our granddaughters, who I know are going to love them, uh, that one of these women had made. So cute. So I was happy to see Ruba use the skills that she learned here through our We Lead program uh, and take them home and teach them to Muslim and Christian women in her country. They are absolutely incredible women that are that are there, and it's it's so great that we're able to just give them a little bit of a boost to help them accomplish their really amazing goals. That's right. We also give them a, a network mm -hmm. with each other. Our, in our other We Lead groups, when we've had just women from Egypt or just women from Tunisia, and now this last group that were women from across Northern Africa and the broader Middle East, but they have each other to talk to and to... Uh, compare stories and to talk about what they're interested in. It gives them a network that they might not have had before. 
And of course, they can stay in contact with us. And I will say that when Ruba was here in the program, she's a natural mentor. So she developed this role as kind of being a mentor to some of the younger scholars. And so as Mrs. Bush said, the network expands beyond Jordan. So she had some Lebanese mentees in the, in the cohort. So I know it was so special for you and President Bush to go visit her project. It really was great and great to see her. <laughs> so we're, we are recording today uh, at the Bush Center in Dallas. And the Bush Center sits on a 14-acre uh, restored prairie right here in the middle of town. And the driving force behind that park really was Mrs. Bush. Where did your love of conservation originate from? Well, my mother was a conservationist. She grew up out on the Chihuahuan Desert in El Paso, uh, but she was always interested in nature. When uh, she was my Girl Scout troop leader, we got our bird badge, which of course I barely remember, but she (laughs) became a very knowledgeable bird watcher and um, joined the Midnats, the Midland Naturalist. When you think of Midland, an oil town, you probably don't think of it as a town with a lot of naturalists, but of course it is, because their business is the earth. Uh, they're geologists, geophysicists, a lot of people like that that are, work in the oil business that are particularly, obviously, made their life and their interest in the earth. Uh, so I was inspired by my mother, who was a conservationist, I'd been bird watching with her a lot in Midland when um, the band DDT sign started going up on the telephone poles around town. I knew it was my mother who was putting them up. Those band DDT signs came in her Audubon magazine uh, that she put up. So for my whole life, really, because of her, I've been interested in conservation. So I wanted this uh, these grounds that we have around the Bush Center to look the way the native prairie would have looked here in Dallas. There's very little native prairie left uh, anywhere in our state, even though that's what we were. And certainly out in far west Texas where I live, they say the prairie was, the grassland was flank high on a horse (laughs) when the first uh, people settled out there. So One of the things we did here was work with the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center to develop a native, a mixture of Texas native grasses that make a nice low grass. They don't have to be watered very often or mowed very often. And uh, that's what we have our whole lawn out of here at the Bush Center. It's a grass you can now buy. You can buy the seeds of it from Douglas King Growers or from the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. But of course, it's not traditionally dark, you know, bright green like a, right. like a traditional non-native grass lawn would look. In fact, I understand there's a man across the street here that offices across the street that calls the president of SMU and says, when are you going to mow? <laughs> because it does get tall and we only need to mow it two or three times a year. But we also have never had to use city water to irrigate it. We collect all the runoff from the building into a, a, a cistern uh, where it uh, seeps through a cistern and then uh, we keep that water in the cistern and that's what we use when we do need to irrigate. And Mrs. Bush, as you just mentioned, your um, love of conservation goes back to with your mother and your grandparents in El Paso and in Midland, and you've um, your childhood friends from Midland. You've shared that with them um, ever since you turned forty That's in the right. national parks. So, right. what are your memories of um, sharing the national parks and uh, conservation memories with your Midland well, friends? Well, I've hiked with uh, women that I grew up with in Midland every year for in our national parks. 
we started uh, years ago uh, with the Grand Canyon first. It was our first trip where we floated on the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon and camped on those little spits of a beach that are along the Colorado River and then hiked out at the South Rim when we got there. Uh, we loved that trip. We did that again. That was the first trip we did. And then we did that again years later when uh, we lived at the White House. And on that trip, we took our daughters. All of us have daughters. Some of my friends have sons as well. But we took our daughters on that trip. And as I remember, the girls hiked out in about four hours. And the old mothers barely made it out in about seven hours of hiking out. Uh, but we're so fortunate in our country to have been set aside our most beautiful natural environments with all of our natural national parks that are everywhere. And besides that one park, of course, with this same group of Midland friends, we've hiked everywhere from Denali in Alaska to Appalachia and the Appalachian Trail and on the East Coast. And so we've had the chance to see all these magnificent sites that we're fortunate are conserved and preserved as national parks. Speaking of daughters in um, national parks, I remember an engagement when we were in the White House. That's right. Uh, Henry asked Jenna to marry him uh, on Cadillac Mountain in Maine, which is the place where you can see the first sunrise um, on the, obviously, the East Coast, the first sunrise. And he made her, they were camping, and he made her get up and hike to the top so they could see, be there at the sunrise when he asked her to marry him. And Jenna said she complained the whole way up. She was cold. <laughs> Just typical. She got up there to the top, and then uh, that's where they got engaged. And then they obviously married uh, while we lived at the White House. And speaking of national parks, we'll keep going on that theme. In, in 2007, the theme for the um, for the White House Christmas was Holiday in the National Parks. And this year, we're going to have a our Christmas exhibit is going to be a replica of that theme. So why did you choose the national parks in 2007? Well, of course, I chose the national parks because they've been important to me for all these years that I've hiked in a national park. And during those years that we lived at the White House, I hiked in a national park every year with my same friends, these friends that I grew up with in Midland. Uh, We had entered the National Park Concession Lottery to hike in Yosemite. Yosemite has a very short season in the High Sierras. And there are tented camps. There are camps up there where you can hike from camp to camp. And so, but it's a lottery because they're just such a short season. So we'd never been drawn to hike in Yosemite. So when George was elected, I called my friends and said, guess what? We won the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) So we hiked in Yosemite that first summer of 2001. And I'm glad we did it then because it's very difficult. There's some 12 mile days and uh, it's hard. It, it was good that we were that young to be able to do it. We couldn't do it now. <laughs> but anyway, so because of our love for national parks, it was a perfect theme for Christmas uh, one year. And, um, that, and that's the theme that we will be reproducing this year. The 2007 at the White House um, theme was Christmas in the national parks. And so we have all those decorations. You might not know it, but when you leave in the White House, you get to leave with the decorations that you used for each of those Christmas holidays, and they're stored here in the archives. The papers of the presidents are seen as belonging to the people of the United States. So the papers are all here, and including the decorations from each of those years of Christmas 
in as part of the archives here at our library. So this year, if you come visit the Bush Center for Christmas, uh, you'll get to see what those decorations were in 2007. Christmas in the national parks. <laughs> and what kind of uh, what kind of ornaments and, and decorations did y'all use? Well, we used um, a, we sent out actually big balls and asked for an American artist to decorate them with a painting of their favorite national park or a national park that was close to them or that was in some part of the country where we lived. And so we have those as well. And then, of course, we did every, sort of natural decorations like many people would, using pine cones and magnolia leaves and the things that you might be able to just get in your own yard, like in a natural way, like like you would if you wanted to visit a national park. Oh, that's going to be beautiful. I'm, I'm excited It will about be it. really pretty. Really excited about it. Mrs. Bush, just on the Christmas theme for a minute, it's such a magnificent memory to all the memories in the White House. Um, what are some of the, um, when all the Bushes came to town and everyone went to Camp David, what are some of your memories from the White House years? Well, one thing I remember is there's a group of people, they're just volunteers who decorate for the White House every year, decorate the, uh, put up all the decorations, and they come in sort of around the country. A number of them are florists. Uh, who already have decoration, you know, th- skill in being able to decorate. But they decorate from year to year. They're not necessarily supporters of whoever the president is that lives there. But but it was really fun to have them come in. And I remember that one year when we used that f- fake white snow, you all, you all have seen it, that kind of you shake out of a mm-hmm. box and was piled up under the one of the Christmas trees that they decorated. Then they sort of had a snow fight. at the end of the decorations there but then what we always did was go to Camp David so I know we have a record that no other family will ever hold because we've been at Camp David for Christmas for four years when George's dad was president and then um, then for the eight years that we were there all the Bush family came to Camp David and it was a perfect place to be there for Christmas. It let the White House, the people that work at the White House off for the holidays. And the people at Camp David are stationed there. It's a military base. It's actually a Navy base, which is odd because it's not on the water. But when it was founded uh, during the time of Franklin Roosevelt, the crew from the presidential yacht were the ones that uh, staffed Camp David. And they were Navy. Uh, There's no longer a presidential yacht, but there is still, of course, Camp David. So we were with uh, the families that were stationed there. So they were there with their own children and their parents, their uh, wives and husbands. And uh, we had always had a Christmas Eve church service at the little church there at Camp David with them. And there was something very special about getting to be with members of the military there at Camp David. Well, and the national park system that... that is the base of all this too. They don't, I think everyone thinks of them as just taking care of Yosemite and the Grand Canyon, but they also do the national monuments and the White House and the Alamo. And even like, um, I'm going to get this name wrong. So correct me here. Uh, uh, yeah, that's exactly (laughs) it. Um, which is, is a national Marine monument that president Bush designated in the Northwestern Hawaiian islands. And I got to go there. It's so far in the northwestern, in the Pacific, way up there that it's a long flight even from Honolulu up to Papahunaumokuakea. Midway Island is one of the islands, and Midway Island has, um, 
you know, a landing strip and everything because it was a refueling spot during World War II with planes that flew from uh, the United States toward Japan. So it's the only one of the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands that actually has a landing spot. But I did have a chance after George named it as a National Marine Monument, had the chance to go there and see it. Why, why is it so important that we protect our oceans and, and assets like Papa you Yeah, thank you for bailing me out. Thank you. Well, this is one of the things we saw when we were there. There is a very large bird, the Laysan albatross, that nest up there in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. They nest on the ground. They don't have any, you know, natural predators that are there on these remote islands. And so these little babies were waiting, little baby lace-on albatross or chicks were in their nest, and their parents go off and fish for squid on top of the ocean and then come back and feed their chicks. And so every once in a while, there'd be a little dead chick, and we'd look at it. And when we opened it up, we'd see that the parents hadn't come back with squid, but they'd come back with plastic bottle caps and Mm. toothbrushes and little plastic toys and um, just the plastic that's out there in the that in that remote part of the ocean, and of course, it's not all from the United States. It's from Asia. It's from many parts of the world. But we saw the effects of plastic in this most remote place you can imagine. Now, not every little albatross was dead. Obviously, there are plenty that grew up and and. Um, you know, this big, great, big lace on albatross. But still, it was a reminder of how small our world is now and how important it is that we all pay attention to what we do, that what we do can make an effect, you know, when whatever we throw out washes down to the river and then washes out to sea. And so it's important for us to uh, try to conserve our beautiful world. We only have one planet. That's right. And it's it's so interesting because that's on the one hand that's this remote island um, that you and President Bush have care so much about, and also just your own literal backyard at Prairie Chapel Ranch is an, is another conservation example. When, that's right, and we're about to be there for the W one hundred. That's right, we're about to uh, go. George, I think goes tonight to um, the ranch, and then I'll go tomorrow after the Bush Foundation board meeting. This weekend, he's hosted warriors, wounded warriors, for the bike rides at our ranch. We have a lot of bike trails that have been built over the years uh, there. A new group of warriors will ride with him, and then the alums who've ridden with him in other years can join on the second day and ride with him, too. So I think that'll be a, a lot of fun. But one of the things we have done at our ranch is try to restore the prairie that was there. Uh, the native prairie that would have been there. And, of course, it was gone because it had been farmed. Right. Uh, the area around Waco, which was a cotton-producing area, and that's the farmers that we bought the, our property farm from, had uh, plowed it. Uh, but we've spent the, all the years since we bought it, about 10 years now, I guess we've owned it, or maybe slightly longer, first plowing up the non-native grass over and over, year after year, year after year, until we finally really got rid of it. And then using these little seed from these little remnants of intact prairie that our native grass man that helps us at our ranch had bought up. And so now we probably have a little over 100 acres of native prairie. Oh, wow. Which means we've seen quail again at our ranch. And we're not quite in the quail 
area of Texas, but but we do have them because they're ground nesters. They're dependent on prairies to nest, and we've gotten to see those. And plus, we're just proud to have it. Now we have we can hay our native prairie, so now we have our own native seed and can continue um, adding more acreage as, um, as we can. And Mrs. Bush, you've taken this idea, this innovative idea of bringing um, Texas back to nature when you founded Texan by Nature. And can you tell us just a little bit about that? Well, when I moved home from the White House with this same group of friends, some of them were the uh, my friend Midland friends that I hike with. Uh, several of them are ranch women that grew up on the big ranches of Texas, the Armstrong Ranch in South Texas, the uh, uh, ranches around Albany. We all joined together to try to encourage people to use native plants in everywhere, in their landscapes, in, in their churchyards, wherever you can plant it. And especially, we wanted them to plant the milkweed, the native antelope horn milkweed that monarch butterflies depend upon to um, where they lay their cocoons as they migrate toward Canada for the summer and then fly back down in the winter toward Mexico to the breeding grounds of the monarch butterfly. So we've worked with a a lot of groups, a lot of uh, corporations that have corporate campuses of 140 acres or so have gotten together and started to plant this antelope horn milkweed. And one of them, a, a defense contact tractor out of close to Austin, now they're keeping bees even. Uh, because they know how important it is for po- for us to have pollinators. We couldn't have agriculture if we didn't have pollinators. And it's very important that we, uh, that we continue to make sure that we have enough native plants around uh, for the pollinators that de- are dependent, especially, the, of course, the monarch butterfly. And as you can see, the sort of shape of Texas where the actual flyway of the monarch butterfly up from Mexico, up to Canada, and then back back as they fly back down. They fly in successive generations. They only live about nine days. So they have to have the antelope horned milkweed to put their cocoon on for the next generation, which is why it's really important. And of course, nearly all of that mid part of the United States has been plowed because it's the agriculture belt. I mean, we we're dependent on it too. Right. Uh, that's how we eat. Uh, but there are ways we can mitigate uh, the the uh, destruction to the uh, milkweed, to the and obviously to the monarch butterfly. Yeah, you see these headlines every now and then of of you know, bee counts are down and butterfly counts are down. It's all such a delicate cycle that uh, it really is. And that's why it's important to you make sure you plant some native plants in your yards or in your on your corporate campuses like. Uh, these companies around Austin are doing or in your churchyards. And so that's what Texan by nature is, is just to try to encourage people to use native plants. And of course, they're the ones that thrive, that do the best um, in our pretty unforgiving atmosphere that we have here in Texas, or weather, I should say, hot Hot in the summer, cold in the winter. <laughs> so as we as we get ready to wrap here, I think we, we've got to know, we've talked so much about national parks, and you've been to so many national parks. So which one do you think parents should take their children to? Which one should we go to? What do you think? Well, I think you should go to your closest national park. Find out uh, which park is close to you. Find out your national historic sites 
that are in your neighborhoods, which are also part of the national park system, and visit those. And certainly, my parents, we the trip that we would make from Midland would be to the uh, to the Big Bend, which is our big, great, big, huge national park down at the bend of Texas. But then also to San Antonio to visit the Alamo and all those things that Texans like to do. And you might not know it, but the Alamo is a national historic site. So um, research and find out what are the ones closest to you and take your children to those first and then give them the opportunity to visit others as they grow up. That is, I think that's a perfect message to end it on. Um, Mrs. Bush, thank you so much for doing this. We know you're busy and, and it's an incredible treat. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Learn more about the Bush Institute's We Lead program at www.bushcenter.org slash We Lead Scholars and view photos from Mrs. Bush's trip to Jordan at www.bushcenter.org slash Jordan Trip. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about the Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.